The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. weeks ago we looked at Isaiah 7:14. unto us a virgin a child will be born and his name will be called Emmanuel and Jesus had to be born of a virgin so as to bypass that sin that comes through the father or any male he would be the perfect savior and last week we looked at those wonderful four titles the wonderful counselor mighty God eternal father and Prince of Peace from Isaiah 9, that this baby was not just any baby, but he indeed was God himself. And now today, a passage that even the Pharisees got right, and that's saying something for, for our, if you know your Bibles. They got this one right. Micah chapter 5, especially verse 2. And what I want to do today, I want to read through down to verse 5, where I talk about the history, I want to apply it to us, but I really just want to get into what it means for the prophecy of Jesus. So a little bit different sermon today, but it is important for us to know why we celebrate this passage and what it really means. If you're able to stand this morning, would you join us in standing for God's word as we start in Micah chapter 5 and go down to verse 5. Micah 1 Chapter 5, verse 1, down to verse 5, with focus on verse 2. He says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, and siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is able to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is, is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell with him securely. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrians come into our lands and tread in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at his entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. But the focus on verse 2, and I'll read it again. But you, O Bethlehem, Etherpah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is able to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And we know his name as, as Jesus. Let's go before the Lord in prayer as we remind ourselves this holiday season about what God has done and what he has fulfilled in his son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you once again. We thank you for the lighting of an Advent candle that reminded us of the coming Savior. We thank you for the Lord's Supper, which tells us and reminds us as Pastor Nelson led to go back to the cross and the burial and the resurrection and the coming again. We now go back to that great prophecy Micah made in the midst of a very hard time, some six, seven hundred years before the birth of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may we not forget, may we not misunderstand what this prophecy was about, but may we, with all good tidings and, and good courage, take hold of every detail that you have crossed every I and dotted every, or crossed every T and dotted every I. You know it, Lord, and we are so grateful. 
We pray these things today in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Well, there was a, you may be seated. Long ago, there was a ruler who was a good and wise king, and he loved his people, and he lived, and he wanted to know more about their hardships, this great proverbial story goes. And often he would dress himself, not in the royal garb, but he would put on the normal garb or clothing of the people that he was going to serve. And one time, he visited a very poor man in a cellar. And he ate the man's terrible, coarse food, and he spoke cheerful, kind words to him, and then he left. But this Persian king one day visited the poor man again, and he decided that he needed to tell his new beggar friend that he was indeed the king. So the next time he saw him, he said to him, man, I am your king. And the king thought for surely that the man would ask for some gift or some favor or some special place, knowing now that he knew this man was the king. And the poor man said, and I quote, You left your palace, O king, and your glory to visit me in this dark, dreary place. You ate the terrible coarse food I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. To others give your rich gifts, but to me you have given yourself. What a picture that is of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. When we know the king, we know the king of glory. He gave himself for us, and the Bible calls him an unspeakable gift. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus came in the flesh. He was sent in the flesh. He was appeared in the flesh. He died in the flesh. He came down to us. And all across this world, no one ever started so high and humbled himself so low as did the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are so grateful for that. And the miracle of the incarnation is that God did not cease to be what he was to become in becoming who we are. And so this morning, why this passage? Why is this so important? Why this topic that we know so well? And what does it mean for you? Our big idea today is simply that in Bethlehem, our complete and final forgiveness was born. In Bethlehem, our complete and final forgiveness was born. When we are facing the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ coming to us, We must decide if if we're too big for it or if it's too big for me and you. Only one response saves us, and that is that he came to save his people from their sins. This promise indicates that God keeps his promises. It indicates that God does not forget what he said he would do. And it shows for us once and for all that we don't need anything else except Christ to enter the kingdom of God. And so this morning, I want to give some back history I want to go then over what the passage means, and I want to apply it. Very basic outline today, but I pray you'll be encouraged, and I'll pray you will be blessed. And look, every church everywhere is doing these exact same things. Many of you have probably heard this before, but I ask, as I often do, that you come to it afresh, because this week has been a great week in studying it afresh and seeing what God has done. And if you can say Ephrathah five times fast, you might be a prize after the service. As Nelson and I were trying to do that a little bit this week in the office about how to pronounce it. But I want to give you some back history. First, I want you to see that the history of this prophecy, it's a big deal. Because Micah 5.2 is the calling card of the Messiah himself. Jesus never kept his identity private. He always wanted people to know it, but he often shared it through what he did, not what he said. But to be the Messiah, you had to be born in Bethlehem. And even Matthew 2, the Jewish leaders, when they were called by Herod, got this right. Herod asked him and asked the wise men, to whom are you seeking? And they said, we're seeking the Messiah. If anyone came out of Bethlehem, it would be the Messiah himself. But I want you to know that Jesus often kept his, his identity 
private. You think about the woman at the well. She said that the Messiah was coming, and Jesus told her in John 4, 25, I who speak to you, I am he. And then you think about uh, Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he kept it quiet. Even the demons would cry out, hey, Jesus, son of God. And what did Jesus do to those demons? He silenced them. He would heal someone, and he'd tell them, I'm the son of God. And what did he tell them not to do? He told them not to go talk about it. And most people went and talked about it. Jesus preferred people to recognize him through his works rather than through a Twitter announcement or a a press conference or anything of those regards. And there at the triumphal entry, though, you saw some hints as Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross as people cried out, Hosanna, son of David. But there was one time that Jesus clearly himself declared in public to be the Son of God. Now, I want to be clear on this. Jesus affirmed he was God, but he did it privately more than publicly. Do you remember in Matthew 26, as they were uh, having a sham trial with Jesus, they asked him, are you the Son of God? And what did he say to them? He said, yeah, it's, it's, it's as you say. And people speculated about this, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a little bit of a problem. They believed that Jesus had come from Galilee. Because you remember the story, don't you? Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. But where did he grow up? In Galilee. And they always thought him as a Galilean, as a Nazarene. And to a degree, they were right. But in John 7, when he taught them in the open uh, fields, John 7, 38, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of water. And there was great debate in John 39 and 40 about who he was and where he came from. Some people wondered, is this the man from Galilee? And they, and they did not understand what Micah 5.2 just said, that the Messiah had to come from Bethlehem. They understood it, but they did not connect it to Christ. And if they had known Jesus better, they would have known that he was there in Bethlehem. And you remember the story, don't you? They went because there was a census. They went because God providentially put Quirinius, the governor of Syria, Herod the king, and all these things in place. But I want you to understand that fact. You can miss Jesus by simply misunderstanding what he came to do. But if you are a Christian, your goal now is to do what Jesus told you to do, and that is to shout from the rooftops everything that who he is and what he has come to do. Jesus kept it private, but he often did that for the sake of doing his works rather than the other side. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled about 50 different Old Testament prophecies. He fulfilled about 50 different Old Testament prophecies. Micah 5.2 is just the, the tip of the iceberg here. We could go through many different passages that talk about Bethlehem, but this is the most prominent one. Micah 5.2, he would be born in Bethlehem. If the Pharisees are smart, they would keep someone in this backwater town that was Bethlehem to keep eye on things, but they really didn't. There was a heightened sense at the birth of Christ that something was going to be happening soon, but no one really penned that Christ was the one that was to be born. And friends, I want to remind you what Romans 15.3 says, or 15.4 says, that everything that was written in the past was written for your instruction. These aren't just facts to hold on to. 50 different prophecies came to be fulfilled. How many people today say that God's going to do this or God's going to do that, and they miss one and two and three and four, but yet we still herald them? God has fulfilled everything that he said he would fulfill, and he does that in your life as well. There's not one promise that is not yes or amen in Jesus Christ. He fulfills everything. 
Next thing I want you to note about this is just some context about Micah himself, just about Micah himself. It's a reminder to us that Micah was a prophet. He wrote around uh, roughly 735 B.C. He was writing during the time where the Assyrian army was attacking the northern kingdom of Israel. You may remember that under David and even Solomon, the, the, the kingdom was like this. It was united mostly under David and Solomon. It was, the foundation was cracking. And finally, under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, there was a breaking apart. Some went to the north of Israel. Some went to the south, known as Judah. But Assyria was getting ready to attack Micah and, and all these people. And Micah was prophesying to them, come, come, hear what God has to say. And, but things were actually going really well. The country was prospering. The mortgage rates were less than 1%. And milk was less than $2. And cucumbers were under 50 cents again. And all those things that were happening. And so it fell upon deaf ears. And as Micah came, he was referring to all these things that were coming. And you even see that a bit in verse 1. He says, now muster your troops, O daughter, uh, muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That verse right there in verse 1 was a prophecy that was coming. Then in about 720 or 719 BC, that all the northern kingdom would be wiped away by, by the Assyrians who probably made the Nazis look like choir boys and girls. They were that wicked and that terrible. And yet Micah prophesied. What did he prophesy? He prophesied threats and judgments. But it finally came to a reminder to them that all their kings would fail. Every single king that they had in northern Israel was never noted as godly. That's a terrible thing. Can you imagine a church having a list of pastors and none of them were noted as being godly pastors? We would call that a pretty wicked church, wouldn't we? Yet the northern kingdom, they were prosperous Things were going well. Their bank accounts were filled. Life was good. But Micah said, but you're lacking the one thing that you need most in your life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. And so Micah's writing these threats and these judgments, and, and, and all throughout, there's three cycles in Micah that come with these judgments. Micah 3, there's a lamentation about how, or there's a sorrow about how terrible the kings are. In Micah 4, there's going to be a peace that's coming. And in Micah 5, there's a call to battle. And that judge of Israel, and you can look this up later, is probably Zedekiah, the last king of, the, uh, uh, of Judah. This prophecy was fulfilled both in the coming of Assyria, but also in 2 Kings 24 and 25. King Zedekiah thought he could beat Nebuchadnezzar. And so he rallies the people, and Nebuchadnezzar hears about it, and he sends forth an army, and we know the rest of the story. 586, 587, Judah falls. The temple's destroyed. The people are taken back into captivity. And that's why he says there in verse 1, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. They literally plucked out his eyes. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And you hear all these things happening. You hear the prophecies of, of, of Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah coming true. And then you come down to verse 2, and there's a glimmer of hope. Will you read it with me again? Look at verse 2. He says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is strong, a strong ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, who is from ancient of days. 
This prophecy that was given to Micah was given on the heels of about 170 years of terrible history within the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom and Judah. And so as they were looking for the Messiah, this was one they held on to. They have a place, they have a specific ruler that's going to come, and they know it's from old. And so they hold on to this because they know no one but the Messiah, the coming Lord, could be this one. And so they hold on to it. And I want to give you three perspectives that come from this verse as we look at it. The first perspective I want you to see that is revealed by this announcement in Micah 5.2 is the modesty or the humbleness that is this Messiah to come. He's modest or humble. And you note there in verse Two, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Bethlehem was the place that was to be born. Christ was to be born in, but it was a place of no significance. It's a place, I was trying to relate this around to us, and down here, there's a little place. Uh, we have Randolph. Uh, many of you know Randolph down here at 435 and 210, probably because of the speeding tickets they used to give out if you drove through that area. Many of you know the little towns north of here, I think in my area, Grayson, Missouri, Trimble, Missouri, any of these little places, Mecca, Missouri, got flooded by Smithville Lake years ago and they let the dam flow forth, all that stuff. These little places that really have no significance to anything or anyone. Or my favorite in all Missouri, uh, which is called Tightwad, Missouri, if you've ever driven through there before. And they have a bank in Tightwad, by the way. That's a whole other topic for conversation. But there's nothing significant about Bethlehem. It's called the house of bread. There's really not much there. But we know that the Savior would come from the clan of Judah, specifically through the line of David. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was a Pharisee, I would be keeping tabs on every pure bloodline of David's family until I saw the Messiah come. And we don't really have record that they did. But you notice here the emphasis is on his birthplace. It points to his humble origins. Jesus Christ did not come to this world as a first to rule with an iron scepter. He did not come with pomp and circumstance. He came in a lowly state, did he not? And friends, I want to remind you as well, Philippians 2, 3 says, consider others better than yourselves because Christ considered you better than himself when he came. That's what we're called to do. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 goes on to say, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friend, I just want to give a word of reminder here to you today. God is either going to humble you or you are going to be humbled. God is either going to humble you or you are going to be humbled. He will exalt the person who's humble, but he will humble the person who exalts himself. Our Savior did not come to get fanfare. He did not come to get on the weekly news. He did not come to be viral on social media. He came as a servant, and he came in perfect righteousness. He came to show once and for all that he was here to serve us. Now, that's not how his second coming is going to be. His second coming, he's coming with a sword. His second coming, he's coming on a white horse. And his second coming, he's coming to take back what has rightfully always been his, and that is the souls of men, the glory on this earth, and everything else in between. 
He's coming again. He humbled himself in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. He humbled himself in a cattle stall, probably attached to the family house. He was greeted first by shepherds, not by kings. He was a dependent child, not an independent adult. He was a giver of the law, living under the law. Literally, the creator became the creature. So who are we? May God exalt us. God humbles the proud, but he exalts the lowly. And that goes for us church as well here too. Our church is not to make much of us. So many church budgets have a lot more line items about the branding and the mission statement and everything of their church, and those aren't bad things in and of themselves than they do about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever that can be known. Do we accept him as a humble savior? We should, because that's how he came. He came modestly. But he also came, number two, he came as a monarch. He came as a monarch. What's a monarch? We're, you know, we, we're, we Americans are weird sometimes. We, we don't like people that we can't vote out, but we have a strange fascination about, especially the British royal family. We always have. But I use that word monarch intentionally there. But despite entering the world, notice what it says here in verse 2. He, he, he shall come forth one who is to be a ruler in Israel. A ruler in Israel. That is a key phrase. He had been born king of the Jews is how the wise men highlighted him. But unlike other births and unlike other kings, he did not have anything. He did not ascend to the throne because there were other people that gave him that title. He had always been king of kings and lord of lords. It was not laid upon him because he was simply born this way. He was given that title because that's always who he had been. And Revelation 20, Micah 4, and all the Old Testament prophecies tell us that he will rule and reign. I want you to know Satan may look like he has every inch of ground in this world, but Satan has no power unless God himself gives it to him. He is the devil's, or, or Satan is God's dog in the sense. He is leashed at all times. Philippians also tells us, and a minute ago I read, that Jesus emptied himself. He divested himself of, 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 of not his eternal attributes. He temporarily set some of them aside so he'd come down to us. He's a monarch. He's king. And so, friends, it's important for us to remember that if Jesus is king, you and I are not. If Jesus is king, you and I are not. This ruler who would come is one who is sovereign. He's one who is saving. He's one who's overall. He's one who is bringing it all together. He's one who, who cannot be thrusted or thwarted. The hand of the Lord is not too short that he cannot save you. Do you see why we hold on to him? You see why we always go back to him. And our text underscores that. This one who would come as ruler, and that same word ruler can be connected back to that Jesus is God himself, that God himself came down in human form, and that he is coming here, and he presently reigns over everything that is in this world. He presently reigns. And so I want to just encourage you, whatever you are facing this year, as you close out 23 and start 24, is Jesus the king over your decisions, over your wisdom, over everything that you have, or are you sitting on that throne? You know, some people put out on Facebook sometimes, Jesus, take the wheel. Well, guess what? Jesus has already been at the wheel, and you're dead in the back seat, so don't go there. He's always in charge. He's always driving. The question is, are you letting him take the helm, or are you trying to take over? 
May that not be the case wherever we go. May we humble ourselves. So he is modest. He was humble when he came. He was of little to be among the clans of Judah. One that would come forth would be ruler, not just physically, but spiritually. And finally, he was also going to be majestic in his coming. You could spend a lot of time on this verse in a lot of ways, but this last part especially holds true. Read it with me. He says at the end of verse 2, the one who's coming is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Do you know where we get that phrase? I think there's a song, Tina, from the 90s called Ancient of Days that we used to, we've sung it before, and it's an old song, but that word ancient of days harkens back to Daniel. Daniel loved that phrase, and every time Daniel saw a vision, there were two phrases that came out, the son of man and the ancient of days. Literally, there's no way to tell how old God is. He's so ancient, he's before the days. He's outside of time. And all your minds shrivel like a butter and 30 seconds in the microwave. And they should, because this king whose coming is from old, his coming forth is from old. That tells us that in the beginning, God had you on his mind. In the beginning, God had his glory on his mind. He's eternal. If you have the new King James, it may say from everlasting or something of that regard. The prophecy spoken here is that he was to rule, he was to redeem, and he was to bring forth his people from coming of old. You know, during Sunday school, if you were there at the nine o'clock hour, you may have asked that question. If God knew that there was going to be a fall, if Adam and Eve were going to sin, then why did he put a tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden? Friend, the plan had always been, knowing what we would do, that God would send forth his son especially born of a virgin. And this parallels John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him, what church? Shall not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. Galatians 4, 4 says that God sent forth the son at the fullness of time. The point of all this is, is that he is a ruler who exercises dominion over everything that he has. And I want to remind you today that God has never learned anything. God has always known everything. I am so grateful for that. There are churches around the world today who won't tell you that they believe these things, but they will tell you that God wasn't sure if the prophecies were going to come true, that God wasn't sure that what he said was actually going to come to pass. Kind of like when you say, the chiefs are going to win today, and behind your fingers, with your fingers, you're doing one of these. Oh, another offsides. Oh, another drop pass. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't be harping on this, but you get the idea. When we say that God is majestic and his comings were from before, he's eternal. He sees it all. He knows it all. He's carrying it all out for his purposes, for your good. He didn't learn anything beforehand. He's exercising dominion. No president can do that. No governor, no mayor, no legislator can do that. Only God can. Why can't you trust him today? So he did not learn anything. He already knew it before time. As we close out today, let me just give you three very practical takeaways as we do. The first I want you to see is this, is as we look at these faith lessons, is that if human effort were enough, the incarnation wouldn't have been necessary. Nobody could put this together as God put it together. 
You could think all day. You could get Stephen King. You could get uh, all the great writers of times past and put them together, and no one would ever come up with anything like this because if they wrote a story about how God would save the world, do you know who would be number one on that list? We would be. But God completely flips it on its head. Everything in the kingdom of God is upside down. The lowly are exalted. The exalted are lowly. The poor in spirit, all the things of the Beatitudes, God flips it on its head. Nothing we can do can ever save ourselves. Do not forget that. I handed out to our Sunday school class a list of probably 200 verses that talk about how sinful we are, how depraved we are. And I told them, I want them to go home and feel a little bit of the weight of depression that comes when you read those verses. But then I want you to go to John 3.16, and I want you to think about that despite who we were, who we are outside of Jesus Christ, he still came to love us. Not because we were good enough or we had faith that he would see through a tunnel of time, but because he loved us and knew only by his grace could we be saved. May God be glorified in that. Second thing is this. If we don't understand the wrath of God, we cannot possibly understand the incarnation of God. I just want to be clear. When I say the incarnation of God, that's a big word to say the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is his perfectly tempered, perfectly tempered goodness, justice, mercy, justice, judgment, coming together against sin because we have offended a holy God. The wrath of God is necessary. The wrath of God has to happen. When Jesus dies on that cross and the earthquake shakes and the the sun gets blackened for a moment and all the things that happen, happen, it's because God the Father laid upon that son everything we deserve. God is love, amen? But God is also a God of wrath. It had to be satisfied some way. There's so many people who love the birth of Christ because it's so cuddly, it's a baby. But the reason he came is that we might have eternal life. That's what it's about. And if you don't believe that God is going to send people to hell, then you shouldn't believe that Jesus came in the first place because there's no reason for him to come otherwise. This time of year, people are more open, quote-unquote, it seems, to the gospel than ever before. Would you pray for opportunities wherever you are taking yourself in the next week, two, two and a half weeks, to ask God, how can I share about that birth in the manger, about the wrath that was to come? I was getting a filling on Thursday at the dentist's office. I felt, I felt my life flash before my eyes a few times. You know, they numb you once, and then they take the drill, and then they hit a nerve, and I buckled back. Oh, you can feel that? Yeah, yeah, I sure can. Thanks. And I thought about it because they were playing all this Christmas music and all the great hymns that we sing, and then all of a sudden, jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. This time of year, we can get our messages so mixed. you got to focus on something when there's needles and drills in your mouth. Do you understand what I'm saying? If we don't understand the real reason that he came, he was to die for us, to take the wrath of God, then we miss Christmas and what it's about. Last one is this. If we don't understand, it's not on human effort, it's not on the wrath of God, but the incarnation is the visible historical proof, again, that God keeps his promises. I think we take that one for granted, church. 
because God keeps his promises. You ask any honest Muslim, any honest Hindu, any honest, any other religion, and say, does your God keep promises? And they will tell you if they're really honest, sometimes I don't know if he's going to come through for me because I didn't do enough. I don't know if my prayers were, were, were holy enough. I don't know if my life was holy enough. When you are faithless, he is faithful. Even despite all your sin, he still sent himself to die for you and to come for you. What is this all about? It's that in Bethlehem, our final and complete forgiveness was born. There's no one else you need. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I would highly plead with you, encourage you. If I could hug you and say, you need to know this truth, you have sinned, Born in that manger was God himself, the Savior of the world. Every kid in here, from ours all across the board to the oldest kids, if you are without Jesus, the greatest gift that you can receive is to receive the gift of Christ himself. And that's what we know. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray today? Let's go before our Lord. Father, as we come to you, as we celebrated the Lord's Supper, as we tried to keep in perspective what this week, these days are all about. We remind ourselves that nothing we can do could ever save us from our sins, but it's what Christ did. And we thank you, Lord, that through all the craziness of the ministry of Christ, his misidentification, through all the pushback of Micah and all the prophets, you sent forth one of those 50 messianic birth prophecies that would be fulfilled. But at the climax here in Bethlehem, Father, we thank you that your son came humbly, that he didn't come as a king as he was, even though he still was a king. He came as a humble servant to lay down his life for us. But he was also that monarch. He was the king of kings and lord of lords at at which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. But he was also majestic. He was before Abraham was, I am. Father, thank you for these things. Thank you that it, at the cross and in Christ alone, we have all that we need for life and godliness. For families here in our church struggling with issues of the holiday, with self, with others, with kids, with spouses, with whatever else may be going on, some grieving, some celebrating, some just remembering, may Christ be exalted. We love you, Lord. We ask these things today in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.